Today's Bible reading is from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear let him hear. Thank you for having us today and giving me the opportunity to open up God's word. But before we go any further, let us stop and let us pray. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to hear you speak to us this morning. And Lord, as we open up Luke 14, we pray that you would be giving us ears to hear what you have to say giving us minds to understand and giving us hearts to obey. Pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So the title of today's sermon is The Cost of Mission. And after a year and a half as a missionary, I've, uh, I've got a pretty good idea of some of the costs of mission. And I think when we think about the costs of mission, and certainly when I get interviewed often at churches uh, or Bible study groups or Christian groups, there are often questions that reveal, I think, uh, what, we, what we all think are the, the usual costs of mission. For example, uh, we are often asked about the relational costs of mission. We live a long way from family and friends, and we um, regularly, uh, sorry, we don't regularly get to see grandparents and uh, family and cousins. Many of our close friends are now probably just friends, and people who are friends are probably more like acquaintances now. There is a relational cost to mission. We also get asked about uh, the physical costs of mission. We go without some of the comforts and conveniences most Aussies enjoy, and we regularly face health issues that um, without Uh, access to healthcare workers and healthcare facilities like Australia. Each of us in our family bear physical scars. That will be with us for the rest of our life from just a year and a half serving in Vanuatu. 
So there are physical costs of mission. And of course, we get asked a lot about the financial costs of mission. And as a family choosing to serve overseas, yes, our income is much lower than if we served in Australia. But of course, it's our partners who are supporting churches, supporting individuals, who carry a huge financial cost to enable us to serve on the mission field. Mission is costly. And today, as we're looking at a passage, uh, we're looking at this passage where Jesus discusses the cost of mission and really the cost of just following him as a Christian. But what he actually discusses, I think, turns our preconceptions of the cost of mission on its head. Jesus talks about the costs and he goes much deeper and much further than we often think and what we often want. So let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 14. I hope you have a Bible with you or at least a device where you can open up a Bible to Luke chapter 14. Let us open our ears and hear what Jesus has to say about the cost to follow him as a Christian and then apply that to being involved in mission today and as life as a Christian in Australia today. So here's my structure and direction of where we're heading today. And notice we're actually just following the structure and logic of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. So first, we'll discuss the audience that Jesus is talking to, but then we're going to look at Jesus' main idea in verses 25 to 27, Jesus' three illustrations in verses 28 to 35, and then Jesus' own application in verse 35b. And this is Jesus' main idea. He says, be sure that you've counted the cost of following me. Be sure you've counted the cost of following me. And what is that cost? Everything. All that you are and all that you have and all that you love, everything in your life now comes second. Jesus first, everything else secondary. Jesus first, everything else secondary. That's Jesus' main idea in this little section of Luke's gospel. So let's have a look at this now. Uh, Open up your Bibles to Luke 14, verse 25. And I'll read 25 to 27 now. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Let's start with just those first few opening words. There was a large crowd following Jesus. This is the audience Jesus is talking to. And we've jumped into the middle of Luke's gospel here. So what's happening is Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. His face is set. He is determined to get there. And he knows what awaits him. His crucifixion. And along the road, he has these large crowds following him. Now, who are these people? Well, we could call them disciples. They're students. They're keen to learn about Jesus. They've heard about Jesus in the first century equivalent of social media, and they have subscribed to his YouTube channel. They're on the road. They're watching. They're listening. We could also call these large crowds followers of Jesus. They're interested. They're inquisitive. They're 
they're literally following him on the road to Jerusalem. Uh, Today, uh, we could call them roadies, even. They're fans. They've put aside other plans. They've left their village for a short time. They've left work. They're paying their own way. They're giving up some of the comforts, walking long distances, out in the weather, whatever it is. There are large crowds who are followers of Jesus on the road. In fact, the more I think about it, these crowds are are just like many folks in churches today. And it reminds me of many of the crowds of uh, Christians in Vanuatu today. Uh, There are crowds at church in Vanuatu. 80% of the population of Vanuatu call themselves Christian and are at church on a Sunday. Um, They're following Jesus like the rest of the crowd around them. And they happily sing his choruses, happily listen to his sermons. Almost everyone In Australia, our churches often don't feel like the crowds are there. Um, Certainly, we don't have folks jostling for the front seats in our Presbyterian churches. Um, If that's the case for your church, then I'd love to hear the secret of that. But it's just, it's not something we see here. But still, I think many people in church in Australia on a Sunday might have some of these similar um, attitudes as as this large crowd. Because the church, too, is full of fans for Jesus. They've subscribed to the channel. They like him on Facebook. They're they're giving up their whole Sunday every week to come and listen to him. Well, Sunday morning, maybe not the whole of Sunday. Well, actually, maybe not every week, but but almost every week. You know, it depends if uh, there's work or sport or family or friend schedules that get in the way. Whatever's convenient, you know. If it's convenient, then we're... Uh, they're there on a Sunday. Uh, they're giving financially too. They're, they're giving 0.7% of their income. That's from the latest stats on church giving. And, uh, and two, uh, they're giving up some of the comforts, perhaps not physical comforts, but certainly social comforts. Uh, it's the work lunch or the mother's group or the party where sexual ethics are brought up or maybe even the Andrew Thorburn and Essendon questions raised and it's that awkward moment where they say, oh, sorry, yes, you're a churchgoer. Ooh. So it doesn't even um, have to be physical comforts but maybe even social discomforts uh, that many Christians face in Australia today. So the crowds are following Jesus. This is the audience. And churches, Christians in our churches today are following Jesus. There is a commitment there from the crowd. There's a hype. They're there to listen. And so what is it that Jesus turns to this large crowd and says? The crowd is there. They're here. They're keen. Bring it on. What's he have to say? And Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, what, is, what did he say there? I, are you confused? Whoever does not hate his family cannot be his disciple. Whoever does not hate his own life cannot be Jesus' disciple. Whoever does not carry his own means of execution cannot be his disciple. What's your reaction to this? Is that what you've heard him say? Surely that isn't isn't what he said. Well, at least surely that isn't what he means. 
is it? Well, friends, we've heard Jesus right. What is the cost of following Jesus? And his answer is everything. All that you are, all that you have, all that you love, even your own life, all of it now must come second. Jesus first, everything else secondary. Jesus, number one, everything else secondary. Now, we can sometimes get tripped over the word hate in this passage. The word can mean emotionally detest something, um, true, but it's not quite how Jesus is using it here. The word can also just mean to be disinclined to something, to disfavor it, or another way, to disregard something as the opposite of giving it preferential treatment. So I hate running, but I love swimming. I hate tea, but coffee to me is like the elixir of life. I love the blues and I hate the maroons. That's how Jesus is using it here. Jesus is saying, what do you love more than me? Your family? Your own life? The cost of following me is changing those priorities. Changing those priorities so number one in your life is me. And then number two, everything else. What's more important to you than me? That's the Jesus, question Jesus is asking. What do you love more than me? What's more important to you than me? Hate that and love me. Jesus first, everything else secondary. Now, to the crowds following him, both then and today, this idea, I think, is profoundly challenging but also incredibly life-giving. Before we launch into any of this application, though, Jesus isn't finished. He gives three illustrations to reinforce this point. And in particular, he shows the consequences of trying to follow Jesus without giving everything else up, without changing those priorities and loves. So three illustrations showing the consequences of not hating everything else in your life in order to love Jesus. Illustration one the embarrassing building project. Luke 14, 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Why don't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it is just going to ridicule you, saying this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. This is a picture of the Tolua Chapel, been like this for a decade. It is unfinished and it's crumbling down. It's an eyesore and it's even a danger to the kids who love to play around it. This is a building project of the college that was started, but the processes just weren't in place to properly estimate the cost. And the result is, well, embarrassing. What is meant to be a useful, beautiful building at the centre of the college campus to use for the glory and worship of God is now, well, an ugly, dangerous embarrassment. And the Tolua community knows this, and they have been working for a long time to try and think about ways to bring this one down and build a proper new chapel. It's clear to them, this illustration Jesus is using, is very clear. 
to my friends back at Tulua. It's very clear to me, and I hopefully it's very clear to you. If you love other people or things more than Jesus, the consequences will be a ugly, useless life, which others will ridicule. Illustration two, the painful defeat. Verse 31, or suppose a king, Jesus says, is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able, with just 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, then he'll send a delegation with the others, uh, while the other is still a long way off, and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, another clear, helpful illustration from Jesus. Consider carefully, if you go into war without enough troops, the result will be a painful defeat, not peace. Putting anything in your life, or even your life itself, before your love of Jesus is like going into a battle without enough troops. And the result is a painful defeat. But Jesus used a third illustration, and this one's about the ineffective life. Verse 34 and 35. Salt is good, Jesus says. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Now, salt is good, and salt is effective for so much, especially in the ancient world, and actually especially in Vanuatu still today. It is very valuable. Most of our students received rations uh, from their sponsors or from the school itself, and these rations are just made up of the everyday basics of life. And in these ration packs are rice, sugar, and you guessed it, salt. Students can pretty much grow or make or just live without pretty much everything else. But salt is important. Salt is good. Salt is useful and effective for so much over there. To preserve your meat, especially when you don't have power or refrigeration, you use salt. To give taste to your food, especially the bland root vegetables they eat, they use salt. Salt is useful for so much, and salt without its saltiness is just useless and ready to be thrown away. Jesus is saying, a Christian's life is good. It is so useful and effective. We are the salt of the world, the light of the world. God uses us, Christians, as the means of achieving his global and eternal purposes in this world. Christians are the main instruments for mission in this world. We are the universe's catalysts for change. Our lives are used by God to bring new and eternal life to a corrupt and lifeless earth. The power and impact of a single Christian life is profound, deep, and eternal. But a Christian life without Christ as the number one love and priority is salt without its saltiness. It is a life unfit for soil, unfit even for the compost. It is utterly useless and ready for the garbage bin. So Jesus is using these illustrations to show just how important his main idea is. If you are a Christian, Christ 
is number one. You must love him first and foremost. You must prioritize him and his commands and his interests and his desires first and foremost. Above your own, above your families, above your friends, you must follow him, even if it means leaving those family and friends, even if it means abandoning your own life, even if it means going to your own execution. Because if you do not, if you do not give up everything, the consequences are, as we have seen from those illustrations, significant. So Jesus ends with a simple sentence for his application. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus is speaking to us today in this room. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what Jesus is saying. And may it make you take a good look at your life, a good look at your heart to see where Jesus stands. Who or what is your number one love? That's the question. Is it your possessions, your work, your physical health, your family even, or is it Jesus? Jesus first, everything else secondary. Now, I th to think about how the rubber hits the road on this, I thought um, I'd provide some insights. I've just come back from Vanuatu and everything's quite fresh in this culture now to me. And coming back to Sydney, I think there are four loves of Christians in Australia today that for some trump the commands and calls of Jesus. So I want to apply this uh, to four possible areas. First, uh, the area of comfort. Second, convenience. Third, control. And fourth, digital connection. So four loves, which which for some Christians, I think they prioritize above Jesus. Let's, and I want to say there's nothing actually wrong with any of these things. There's nothing wrong with loving your family even. But as we saw, it's about putting those things before your love of Jesus. So the question is always, do we love and pursue these things before Jesus and before his call and commands for our life? So, first, comfort. Comfort is a huge priority for Australians, I've realised. Much of our advertising and products is about having a more comfortable home and life. And in Vanuatu, uh, at first I, I was quite shocked by the lack of physical comforts that we have here. There's no hot water where we live, no air con, um, no electricity for most of the day. We are frequently sitting on the floor or um, hard benches or logs or whatever it may be. Vanuatu can just be an uncomfortable place. Again, there's nothing wrong with seeking comfort. And the question is, do we overly prioritise it? But this really came home to me just a few weeks ago when I was chatting to an Australian friend about my trip to the Vanuatu uh, Presbyterian General Assembly in August. Almost everyone in Vanuatu travels to their assembly on a ship, by ship, not by plane. And getting there turns out to often be quite a saga. Um, I went on the ship too. I got to the wharf at Thursday at 11 a.m. 
and we finally arrived on the island at 3 a.m. on the Sunday. So we chose a very slow, a very old, a very broken, turns out, cargo ship to get us there. Now, we had to wait almost a whole day for loading and maintenance. We were crowded into the hull next to the generator. It was hot and steamy in the day, freezing cold at night. Uh, our bed was just the cargo, which happened to be uh, some bags of dry cement dust. I think I have a picture of this. There we go. A bit unclear, but those are just uh, Vanuatu pastors and me um, trying to get a good sleep on this ship. Um, I was just explaining this uncomfortable trip to my Australian friend, and he said something that uh, many have now said to me. They said, he said, hats off to you, Rob. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. And I've heard that in many different ways over the last couple of weeks and months. I couldn't do what you do. I couldn't, I couldn't travel by a cargo ship, or I couldn't live in such a hot climate. I couldn't live without steady internet. I couldn't live without electricity. I couldn't live without hot water. I couldn't sleep without a posturepedic mattress. That phrase has actually come to annoy me quite a bit. Because, yes, you can. <laughs> Couldn't you? I'm pretty sure you could, actually. Uh, you just don't want to. In the scheme of God's purposes for this world, those few days on the boat were rather insignificant and actually rather comfortable compared to missionaries of the past. Paul was shipwrecked for three times, and he only mentions that fact in passing in his letters. And the earliest ships which sailed Vanuatu um, carried their gospel workers, and uh, they sometimes broke down, they sometimes had issue. And when they arrived, they often weren't warmly welcomed at an assembly. They were met with antagonism. They met, were met with tropical fevers. They, some even were martyred. But what I've come to realise is that much good and important work, both inside and outside the church, I think is waved aside as too difficult or unworkable, when really what we mean is it's too uncomfortable. What astounds me is not just the number of Christians who turn down long-term mission work because we lack some of these comforts, and people, and over the last few weeks, people have said, no, I can't commit to that long-term thing um, for some of these comforts. It's actually even the number of people who won't even consider coming for a week to Vanuatu because we cannot cater for some of these comforts. I think some of our pioneering forebears would be just amazed at the paralysis that, uh, that the idol of comfort has on the church today. And I think there's many of our majority world brothers and sisters in Christ who look to us here in comfortable Sydney with a little bit of disappointment at our inability to do hard and uncomfortable things for the sake of the gospel. And it's not just physical comforts. If you've been challenged by what I've said so far, well, hold on to your indignance while I talk about social discomforts. And I alluded to this earlier, but just existing as a Christian in our increasingly secular society is socially uncomfortable today. If you've been a Christian for a while, then I'm sure you've been part of conversations which turn awkward when people realise you're a churchgoer. In fact, the Andrew Thornburn saga just this week has shown us very clearly uh, that this is a very true reality. Christ has called all of his followers to be part of an important work, and it's 
very socially awkward to be a Christian in Australia today. Jesus has called us to be part of a work of sharing the gospel with others and inviting them to become Christians. But today, if we do that, well, it's just taboo. It's actually not just awkward to talk about Jesus and religion. It's now becoming antisocial. In just a sentence or two of a gospel conversation, you'll probably be splashing in the waters of bigotry and intolerance. We all know that it is becoming increasingly uncomfortable to be a Christian in Australia today and increasingly uncomfortable to do the work which God has called us to, which is to share the gospel with our neighbours. So what's your response to doing uncomfortable things for God? Are you like the crowds following Jesus? Because what was their response? Well, when Jesus actually arrived at Jerusalem, where were they? The result of Jesus at the end, when he got to Jerusalem, the, the crowd was avoiding Jesus, was silent, even denied, even having known Jesus. Peter, his best friend, standing just outside that trial, denying three times that he had ever even known Jesus. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, the 12 disciples realized their mistake, didn't they? Peter ended up taking up his cross to follow Jesus and was literally crucified, like Jesus at the end of his life. So Jesus' question for us today is, ah, who are you loving, first and foremost? Are you prioritizing the call and commands and the work of Christ or is it comforts and that, that get in the way? I was going to talk about a couple of different applications, but I, I went a bit on the first one there. So um, I got a bit carried away on that first one about comfort. I was going to talk about convenience, control, digital connection. Uh, but I think I'll let you meditate on those other ones. The title of today's sermon was The Cost of Mission. And that's because Jesus has called us to count the cost of following him to the end of the road, to the heart of the gospel, to the cross. And I started this talk with a few costs of mission, but I hope you've seen today that the true cost of mission, the true cost of following Jesus is actually our own idols. The cost of following Jesus is actually our own idols. The true cost of following Jesus is giving up everything you treasure more than Jesus. Everything you do above what he has asked you to do. So let me leave you with this final thought, though. Because if you are willing to give everything else up, if you are willing to hate your idols and love Christ, then actually what you'll find is freedom. You'll be free from the loves that enslave you. You'll be free to breathe and live for Christ. It's, it's in this very freedom, when you love Jesus more than anything else, that you'll truly be able to appreciate and love like Christ, your mother and father your wife and children, your brothers and sisters. You will see idols of 
comfort or convenience or control for what they really are. They're good gifts from the Creator to be thankful for, but never to be treasured at the expense of obedience and glorifying Christ. It's when Jesus is first and everything else is secondary that we actually find true joy in obedience and hope in sacrifice and zeal in mission. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these hard words from Jesus, but we thank you for the life-giving words that they are. We pray, Lord, that this week you would be giving us those ears to hear these words and then the, the heart and the willpower to obey. There is so much that you have called us to as your followers. There are so many challenges. There are so many things that this world throws our way, that Satan puts in our path, that he tries so hard to make us love more than you. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would be helping us to cast aside everything in our lives which we prioritize and put before you. This morning we pray that we would renew our love first and foremost in Jesus because he, out of great and deep love for us, gave up everything that we may have life and so we pray that we would follow his steps, take up our cross and do whatever it is you call us to out of love and devotion to you. And we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his glory. Amen.